0: Hello listeners, welcome to Autistic Adventures. This is Cass and today is episode 5. We are going to be talking about traits commonly associated with female autism. So in the last episode we talked about Samantha Crafts' autistic checklist and today I'm going to be uh, reading from Dr. Devin Price's Unmasking Autism book and there's little expert excerpt in here about uh, traits that may be a little bit different from the Samantha Craft checklist. So I thought it'd be a good idea to go through that. It's pretty short so hopefully it won't be too long of an episode today so bear with me. So traits commonly associated with female autism. First is the emotional. Strikes others as emotionally immature and or sensitive. That's something I've been dealing with my whole life, even from childhood, being labeled as sensitive, traumatic, over the top, um, you know, acting younger than my peers. Next is prone to outbursts or crying jags, sometimes over seemingly small things. That was another thing I really struggled with as a child was crying all the time, crying about little things. To other people, they were little things. To me, they were big things. I don't struggle so much with that in adult life, but it is something that uh, I did struggle with for a long time. Has trouble recognizing or naming one's feelings? You know, uh, when I would feel a certain feeling, I would be able to label if I felt like that feeling was a good feeling or bad feeling. But even then, I had a difficult time differentiating between Maybe feelings of excitement and anticipation or feelings of nervousness and anxiety because they felt similar. And even to this day, I do have trouble naming what my feeling is. Um, I'm a lot better about recognizing it. Okay, I'm having a feeling, (laughs) but what is that feeling? What does that mean? Uh, What do I need in this moment? So that's something that I've been dealing with uh, for a long time now ignores or suppresses emotions until they bubble up and explode. I thought that this was something that most people did um, that you know instead of feeling that feeling in the moment we kind of push it down or push it away or even gaslight ourselves and be like yeah it's not a big deal you should not be upset about this and then it's three hours later and you're like why can I let this go and it's because we didn't let ourselves feel it in the first place. So we ignore it or we push it down or we suppress it until it all comes out. You know, we get overwhelmed about something or, you know, the sensory in the room is just too much. And it seems like we're, we overreact to something or something happens and, and we react and it seems like it's out of place. And it's because these other feelings and emotions have been bubbling up for some time may become disturbed or overwhelmed when others are upset, but but are uncertain how to respond or support them. I have the kind of special emotional issue where I feel things at a very intense level. Um, You know, when someone's going through something or someone else is in pain, my... Feeling is so intense that it causes me discomfort and pain. I feel like it's happening to me when it's happening to somebody else. And that's a very difficult thing to, you know, know how to deal with. And then in turn, how do you support or respond to that person when the intensity of emotions is affecting you so much that now you feel like you're in that situation with them or you feel like that thing? you know, that caused them pain is now happening, happening to you. Um, and it can cause physical pain. So, you know, that's something that, um, you know, can be associated with female autism goes blank and seems to shut down after prolonged socializing or when overstimulated. So I recently learned about the term, um, you know, selective mutism or being selectively nonverbal. So the difference between that and being nonverbal is someone that is nonverbal or um, has difficulty with being verbal, That that's kind of how they are all the time. Whereas being selectively nonverbal after an event, you know, say you went to a party or you went to a concert or even went to the grocery store, and after that interaction and that experience, everything just kind of kind of seems to shut down and For me, specifically, I need to like move away from the world. I need to go into my safe space, like my bedroom and just either be in complete silence or turn on something that I deem quote unquote safe, which is you know a familiar t v show or a familiar movie, a familiar song. And I just won't talk for a while. I have no desire to talk. I have no desire to interact with anybody. And in order to kind of regain my, my energy levels, I need to be silent and kind of go blank. Kind of shut off those feelings for a while and allow myself to just be. So the next um, section is psychological reports a high degree of anxieties, especially social anxiety. Yep, check, done. Uh, All kinds of anxiety, (laughs) any kind of anxiety you can imagine, I got it. (laughs) Is perceived by others as moody and prone to bouts of depression. So in my younger years, um, my early adulthood, I would say that I would have bouts of depression I don't feel like that is such an issue for me anymore, but I do recall feeling that way. And I would say I have forever been and probably will forever be what is considered as moody. I have highs and lows, and those highs and lows are intense. Um, You know, and oftentimes people, females, will get misdiagnosed as uh, bipolar or BPD because of the extreme highs and lows that happen I'm not either depressed in a deep dark hole or elated and on top of the world but I would say that my emotions can be perceived by others as moody you know kind of having ups and downs and something you know where may not affect other people like if I'm wearing the wrong clothes and the environment's too loud and there's two people talking at once, I'm going to be in a bad mood. And it's like, well, why is that an issue? It's like, because of my sensory issues. So, you know, um, I could see, see how others would see me as moody. Uh, that's what this other thing is just what I was talking about. May has been diagnosed with mood disorders, such as bipolar disorder, personality disorders, such as borderline or narcissistic personality disorder before autism was discovered. I was not misdiagnosed with any of these things, but I also did not seek a diagnosis Um, when I was younger. I did not even consider that I may be autistic or on the spectrum for a few years. Well, not for a few years, but up until a few years ago, I did not consider that myself would be on the spectrum. Um, In earlier episodes, I mentioned that I knew I had anxiety. I felt like I just had a lot of anxiety in my life. I did figure that because I knew I had PTSD that that affected a lot of why I was anxious or why I was emotional, which can come into play, um, but did not fully understand how a female could present with, you know, being autistic. So fears rejection intensely and tries to manage how other people feel to avoid it. You know, oftentimes females have an expectation, even neurotypicals, to mask in some way, shape, or form. We're expected to perform a certain way out in the world. We're supposed to perform a certain way as women, as, you know, girlfriends, as wives, as mothers. You know, we have more expectations and more pressure put on us as females. So, You know, we already have this thing that society tells us this is what you should be. And so when we're not or we feel like we don't quite fit the mold or can't fit the mold, we already have this problem of, you know, rejection and feeling and fearing rejection intensely. And so we'll try and mask even more and try to manage how other people are seeing us or feel about us to avoid that and not really considering, you know, do I even care if this person likes me or sees me as X, Y, Z, you know, is that important? Um, So, you know, you may have rejection sensitivity, you know, dysphoria, which is you feel very intensely when, you know, you're not met with Um, approval, or you feel like people reject you for who you are, the things you do, or the things you say. Next is, has an unstable sense of self, perhaps highly dependent on the opinions of others. I would say that I had this much more in my earlier life, definitely as a child, also as a young adult, but as I'm, you know, getting older Uh, It's been easier for me to kind of pull away from that dependence and really just focusing on what are my wants, what are my needs, what's going to give me peace in my life for who I am, not, um, you know, looking to other people or other relationships to kind of get that sense of self or get that approval. And um, yeah, that can be a difficulty for, for people. Next section is behavioral, uses control to manage stress, follows intense self-imposed rules, despite having an otherwise unconventional personality. So one of my self-imposed rules that I've had um, that I know other people have, but it doesn't seem to be very common is time. I am very, very strict about time management. I am early everywhere I go. I am never, ever, ever late. It gives me extreme anxiety to consider even the possibility of not being there on time. I will go everywhere 30 minutes to 45 minutes early to, like, even if there was a car accident, even if something had happened that was going to delay me getting to my destination, I would still have more than enough time. Um, So that's just one of the things that I, you know, use control to manage my stress, you know, but then if I'm not able to follow through on that in that self-imposed rule, it causes way more stress. So I can't say that that's a good or a bad thing, but, um, you know, there, I'm sure there's lots more examples of just self-imposed rules that no one told you how you have to do this, but... According to you, you will have to do it. I need to do it this way. You need to do it at this time. You need to do it in this season. Um, So, you know, that's something that can be common. Is usually happiest at home or in a familiar, predictable environment. I am a Cancer. Uh, In astrology, I love my home. My home is my safe space. I was just uh, telling my husband the other day, (laughs) if I could just stay at home... And project a hologram of myself to be able to go out in the world and have the experiences, have the memories, do all the things that I want to do, you know, make the appointments that I need to make, but stay at home. That would be like bliss for me, just not interacting with the world, you know, as myself, just being able to be in my safe place, surrounded by my things, all the noises are familiar Um, You know, I know what to expect for the most part. Everything that I want or need is here around me. All my little collections of things that give me joy is satisfying. And when I go out in the world, I never know what's going to happen. I never know what noise is going to happen. I never know the people that I'm going to interact with. I never know how things are going to change because for me, routine is very important and As we know, oftentimes in the world, things tend to change without notice and we have to quickly adapt to that change. And that is really difficult for me, adapting to unplanned change. Even if I plan that there's going to be unplanned change, I still really struggle with it. So I would say I absolutely am happiest at home. Um, I love being with my family. My family brings me so much joy, but um, you know, being in my home is something that is incomparable to being anywhere else. Next seems youthful for their age in looks, dress, behavior, or interests. Um, you know, for me, my opinion of myself is so subjective, so I have a hard time seeing myself in an objective way or seeing myself from a different perspective if I see like recordings video recordings of myself or um, you know look back on certain things or people tell me certain things I'm like that's not the way I experienced it so you know it's it's a possibility that I seem youthful for my age and look stress behavior or interests but to me I'm like I'm just me (laughs) I don't know if that's youthful or not. I'm just me. Prone to excessive exercise, calorie restriction, or other eating disordered behaviors. I have had to learn this many times through self-injury. One of my hyperfixations is yoga. I love, love yoga. It took me many, many years to get to a place where I enjoyed exercise. I was not a fan at all of exercise. Um... I just realized that it I wasn't doing the right types of exercise. Like my my dad would always like to go walking and I'm like this is so boring. I'm not getting any enjoyment out of this. Not my thing. But when I discovered yoga, I liked it so much and if you know anything about hyperfixations, which I'm planning to do an episode of at another time, I'll get hooked onto something and then I want to do it more and do it more and then do it all the time and it's in my waking life and I'm thinking and dreaming about it and everything correlates to that thing. So when I got into yoga, I actually injured myself more than once and had to have like, I had a torn rib and had to have like two years of recovery because one, I was hyper fixated on it. Too, it's hard for me to know what my b- body's doing when it's doing it. I'll feel fine the whole time. I don't feel like I'm pushing myself in excess. And then the next day I'm like, oh no, I did too much. Um, or, you know, just having that, you know, prone to... And then hypermobility is also co- comorbid with autism where we're hypermobile. We don't necessarily realize we're hypermobile, but we're, we're doing that stretch too much or doing doing it for too long and that can cause injury. So I've had to learn many times over the years of even though it doesn't feel like too much, I need to pull myself back. I need to restrict um, the intensity at which I'm doing my yoga. And so, you know, prone to excessive exercise, I would say that's definitely a thing. Uh, calorie restriction or other eating disorder behaviors. I did struggle with um, anorexia for a time Uh, when I was in my mid-twenties. I had gotten down to 100 pounds and it's unfortunate because I really enjoyed the illusion of control of I'm not going to eat because I don't want to eat. And I felt very in control of that choice. I felt out of control in other areas. So when I was able to restrict my eating, I felt um, satisfied about that. And because I have body dysmorphia as well, I thought and unfortunately still think that I looked my best at 100 pounds. And it's so sad because now being at 135 at a normal uh, weight, uh, a healthy weight for myself, still looking back and being like, man, I wish I looked like that. But when I was 100 pounds, I could barely stand up without being dizzy. I couldn't do anything. I had no strength, which I'm already, I already have a low muscle tone. So like being at a hundred pounds and also having low muscle tone, I was like a frail baby walking around and I couldn't do anything or enjoy the things that I wanted to do because I was so small and so weak. So, you know, that's something where, you know, other eater, eating disorder behaviors can occur too. Not that I had, but other people, you know, may have issues with, um, you know, bulimia or other calorie restriction, you know, binge eating, um, just uh, anything that would be considered disordered as far as eating habits or behaviors. Next is neglects physical health until it becomes impossible to ignore. Now this one I do not resonate with because I have OCD and specifically one of my issues that I have, one of my subtypes of OCD is known as health OCD. Other people might look at it as hypochondria, but for me, because I have health health OCD and I am very sensitive to the sensations that are happening in my body, every new sensation or every odd sensation, I'm like... <gasps> I'm dying. Something horrible is happening. I got a twinge in my head and instead of me thinking I'm probably could be dehydrated or maybe you're just, oh, it's a tension headache. I'm immediately, that's a tumor. I have cancer. (laughs) Better start saying my goodbyes. And it's funny to like talk about, but when I'm in those moments, it's very, very scary for me. Um, because it seems so real and that's the thing with OCD is even if you know logically this is probably not happening it's probably not this extreme your brain's like oh yes it is you better go get checked out and you better start writing your eulogy you better start like (laughs) doing those things to say goodbye and so for me I do not neglect my physical health if anything I am Hyper extreme about, um, you know, if something's going on in my body that seems different, I immediately make a doctor's appointment, make a dentist appointment, whatever the case may be, get it checked out as soon as possible because otherwise my mind will be spinning and reeling with the possibilities. I am currently, I know I've mentioned this before, I'm currently in therapy for my OCD. It's called ERP, exposure response therapy, which basically exposes you to the fears that you have or the difficulties you have it starts at a low level so just as with a child teaching them to ride a bike you start with the training wheels you start with a tricycle and you work your way up you don't just throw a child on a adult bike and say bye see ya because you would fail and you would give up Um, so much like that with erp we start at the low level things the things that bother you but aren't so like out of control that as soon as you think about it um you know it's way too intense and you'll give up because it's too difficult. So just as an example, one of the things I'm currently dealing with is I've been having sensations in my mouth and my teeth. And my OCD says my teeth are loose or my teeth are cracked and they're going to fall out. I had made a dentist appointment I had them x ray my teeth. There is no such thing happening. It does not change the sensations in my mouth that are happening. So, you know, although I may know this is not happening, it still feels as though it's happening. So all that to say, what I'm working on in my OCD therapy right now is, you know, knowing that I do not have loose or cracked teeth, even though that's what my brain is telling me, I had had to record my voice and practice listening to me say first it was uh, my teeth are not perfect and never will be perfect and I had to work on that for a while until you know my anxiety got to a point where I was ready to level up essentially uh, the next one that I had worked on was I worry that my teeth are loose or are cracked and going to fall out and had to kind of listen to that and the whole point is you're exposing yourself to the fear and you're sitting with the feeling of what that fear brings up because as it was explained to me is my OCD is kind of like an overactive car alarm. So, you know, when a car alarm goes off, you're like, especially when they first came out, people are like, oh my gosh, someone's breaking into the car. Like it was always an emergency. But now when you hear a car alarm, it's actually like kind of annoying because usually it's an accident. You know, it's someone hit the wrong button on their key fob or a cat walked bike too close or someone bumped into it. So... I have an overactive car alarm and it's telling me that there's always, there's a robber. There's something terrifying is happening. There is an alarm going off and that alarm is real. That alarm is happening. But how I react to that alarm and how seriously I take that alarm is where the work comes into play. So knowing that I have an overactive car alarm in my head that wants to essentially panic at the smallest, you know, Incidents of whatever um, has helped me realize that, you know, just because my brain tells me to panic and the panic button has been hit doesn't mean I need to follow it and like go down that rabbit hole of this is the most serious thing that ever happened. So, you know, after those voice recordings, now I'm at the level where I'm looking at pictures of people with cracked teeth. So if I were to have just started you know, initially when I started this journey and I have several other things I'm working on too with my OCD therapist. This is just one example of something, you know, but, um, if I would have just started with the pictures of the cracked teeth, I probably would have given up and been like, this is way too hard, man. Like I can't, I can't handle that. Like, I don't, I don't want to handle that. It's too scary. Like this is my fear happening right in front of me. I have to look at what I'm fearful of. So, um, you know, and, the other side of OCD is when you have those thoughts, You the C in OCD is a compulsion. So my compulsion was constantly checking my teeth. I'm going in the mirror, I'm looking at my teeth, I'm seeing if there's any new cracks or deviations or anything happening. And then I noticed I was starting to floss and brush more. And through my own research, because I am obsessed with research about anything, learning that actually brushing and flossing more than twice a day can actually be harmful to your enamel. So forcing myself that even though my brain's like, you need to brush and floss more and just do it more and one more time, one more time, one more time, then you'll know it's clean. That actually reinforces that OCD behavior. So the O is the obsession or the thought. The C is the compulsion or the behavior and once you do that compulsion you get to a point where you have this temporary relief and you're like oh i brushed my teeth again i feel better or i checked my teeth and my teeth are okay so i'm better but then the obsession starts over that thought, thought starts over again so it's this vicious cycle that it just constantly reinforces itself so it's okay to have that thought it's okay to have that obsession but when you bring in that compulsion or that behavior you're reinforcing that loop so What OCD therapy helps me with is stopping that loop, letting it stay at the thought process, at the thought level, and sitting with that without doing the compulsion. So now I'm able to look at pictures of cracked teeth. And while it's uncomfortable, and while I have to sit with those feelings of, oh, this doesn't feel great, I don't like looking at this, it's bearable, it's manageable. And then in turn, having those thoughts pop up. Well, what if this happens to you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to go too far into it because that wasn't really where I was going to go with this, but my ADHD wanted to go down this rabbit hole. So here we are. So, um, all that being said that, um, yeah, the physical health thing, I cannot ignore sensations in my body, I have to get it checked out. But part of my therapy is also not uh, leaping to the extreme. So probably the next time a health thing or physical sensation thing comes up, I'm probably gonna have to sit with it instead of immediately making that doctor's or dentist appointment. So that's where I was going with this. Sorry, that was so long winded. Okay, we're still on the behavioral self soothes by constantly fidgeting, listening to repetitive music, twirling hair, picking at skin or cuticles. I do constantly fidget. Um, that's, I believe part of my ADHD too, but it's funny because, uh, autistics often take things very literally and we're like, well, I'm not sitting there moving back and forth in the way that you would consider a fidget, but a fidget could be, you know, rubbing your fingers together or, you know, like they said, twirling your hair picking at your skin, um, rubbing a piece of your fabric on your clothing. Um, uh, I know that actually another one can be picking your nose. That's another one. Uh, there's actually a lot of different things that is like a self soothing behavior for some people. I don't really find much soothing in picking my nose, but when I was a child, I, you know, bit my fingernails down to, to the quick to where I would be bleeding and in pain. I would have trouble sleeping because my fingers would be throbbing from chewing on my nails all day. And then my jaw would hurt because I'm chewing. I finally, finally broke that um, cycle. Actually, when I became pregnant with my kids, because I'm like, I do not want to be putting bacteria in my mouth because I knew like, this is not a good thing. Uh, did not want to be taking that into pregnancy and, you know, in my mind, I'm like, if I chew on my fingers and my, the bacteria or the skin gets in my mouth and then I swallow it and then my kids are going to be eating that through their umbilical cord, <laughs> which is probably not accurate, but you know, that's what my brain told me. So thankfully I was able to stop that behavior, but, um, yeah, so constantly fidgeting. Yes, I do that a lot. Listening to repetitive music. I will wear out a song until it is dead in the ground. I will listen to it every day, sometimes all day, on repeat, until I literally cannot squeeze any more joy or fulfillment out of that song. (laughs) And it's always a different song, you know? Um, But the hyperfixation part of me is, you know, I'm going to listen to this until the dopamine hit is no more. So um, the last section, social, is a social chameleon, adopts the mannerisms and interests of the groups that they're in. Um, I've always been able to do this and I don't see it necessarily as being fake or, um, you know, oh, I'm a different person around this person. It's I know what this person likes or or what they prefer. And so I'm going to bring out that personality, that part of my personality. So for instance, if someone I was a friend with was obsessed with fishing, I wouldn't be like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with fishing too, because I'm not. But I would find another commonality commonality that we would have and kind of focus on that like focus on something that I know that they're a fan of that I am also a fan of so I wouldn't change my personality but I would kind of put certain uh, characteristics or behaviors to the forefront to kind of make it funner for them and um, you know have their interests and their mannerisms kind of in the forefront May be highly self-educated, but will have struggled with social aspects of college or their career. That is me. So I went to college, uh, when I was seventeen and just had turned eighteen. And the first semester, I did really, really well. Um, I got a a lot of A's, B's, and C's, which for college is really good. It was a very highly esteemed, um, university. And so I was doing really well, but the second semester I had like three fails. I withdrew from two classes and it was because I didn't know how to manage the social aspect of like being out in the world and having to choose. Like there, we always joke, there's this triangle, there's three things and you can only really excel in two of them. You can either have a social life, you can have good sleep. Or you can do well in your academics, but you could only choose two. And so what I was doing was I was choosing my academics and social life and I was not sleeping (laughs) and that did not bode very well for the longevity. I burned out in my second semester and actually failed and was not able to return um, because I couldn't afford it. And the FAFSA required that you had to have such and such GPA, which I couldn't maintain because... I didn't know how to manage um, having a social life. I had never really had much of a social life before. And I lived on dorm, you know, in the dorms on the campus. So I was constantly surrounded by people. I had three other roommates. So there was always constant noise, constant going on, constant like parties and things that people were doing. And I just could not manage it. I wanted to. Um, I wanted to do all the things and still excel. And it was really frustrating because I had a couple roommates that they were doing all the things that I was doing, but they were still getting straight A's like they, it just seemed natural to them. It was easy to them. And that was really frustrating to me because I felt like I tried really hard and I would stay up till, you know, four o'clock in the morning in the library trying to, you know, cram for that test or, um, you know, finish all my homework. And I just couldn't ever quite get there can be very shy or mute, yet can become very outspoken when discussing a subject they're passionate about. I've noticed for myself, one-on-one, I can be pretty outspoken. I do very well in one-on-one settings with people and being able to conversate, I feel like I do very well, but when I'm around more than one person, I am pretty shy and pretty mute. I don't really know how I fit in. I don't know how to interject in the conversation. I don't know when it's my turn to speak. And so usually I will just, um, you know, withdraw and just listen. I'll just observe. If someone asks me a question directly, of course I will, um, interact, but, um, I do tend to be very shy or mute in group type settings. But if someone's like, Hey, can you tell me a little bit about astrology or a little bit about crystals which are like two of the, you know my hyper fixations I'd be like oh and then you wouldn't be able to shut me up for two hours and people would be like I am so sorry that I asked that question <laughs> uh struggles to know when to speak when in large groups or at parties just what I was saying uh yeah, I've always struggled with that. I either would over talk and make people uncomfortable, and I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so awkward. Or I would say nothing and I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so boring. And it, I never knew how to like vacillate between the two or find a happy medium. Does not initiate conversations, but can appear outgoing and comfortable when approached. So, yeah, that's me. Um, I going and initiating conversation with someone in a group setting even if it was someone one-on-one sounds like absolute torture to me but if someone were to come up to me i'd be like hey how you doing what's new you know and i i'm very engaging in conversation when i'm talking with somebody but initiating that conversation no that's not happening can socialize but primarily in shallow superficial ways that may seem like a performance struggles to form deeper friendships I feel like I'm the kind of person that I don't want to socialize in shallow or superficial ways. I hate small talk. It's so boring to me. I want to meet someone and be like, what is your deepest, darkest fear? What is your trauma? (laughs) Like, what are you struggling with in your life right now that you haven't told anybody about? Like, those are the things that are interesting to me and other people are like, yikes. So I do struggle to form deeper friendships. I also... I'm not going to say get obsessive, but when I meet someone that I think has the potentiality to be a friend, I'm kind of like overboard. Like I go from, we just met to, oh my God, I think we're going to be best friends, which for other people I've recently found out is extremely off-putting. And I was like, well, I just see the potential. Like it's exciting to me. Like I get invested and excited about things and apparently that's weird. So (laughs) that i would say deeper friendships i maybe have too. um maybe and that's from my perspective so maybe that's not even accurate has trouble disappointing or disagreeing with someone during a real-time conversation this is something i struggle with too um while i may disagree with someone and if someone says something like right out like ableist or racist or, you know, something that's just completely inappropriate, I will call them out. But when it comes to, you know, certain opinions or, um, you know, certain aspects of the conversation, I would probably just listen to what they say. And then later on, several hours later, I'd be like, Oh, I should have said this, or I could have said that, or I could have expressed my opinion that was different than theirs and that's okay that's actually like a normal thing to have differing opinions but in order to do that in a real-time conversation is very difficult it takes me a long time to process what people have said to me before I understand Uh, like I've had people in friendships or relationships where they would say something to me. It would take me hours to process and then realize like they were being an asshole to me or they were saying something that was dismissive to me or making fun of me. And I didn't realize it till hours later. And then I'm like, "Uh." so now I have to choose between ignoring it or I have to bring it up and then think that I'm, strange for like bringing it up after this time when the time's already passed like the appropriateness of discussing that thing so um yeah so that's just a list of traits commonly associated with female autism and some of my own personal experiences this was a longer episode it wasn't uh my intention but that is what happened um there's you know just a to say there's a particular way that neurotype, you know, this neurotype tends to present among people who only discovered this identity later in life. So, you know, for, for autistics and specifically female autistics, um, or, you know, even people that are transgender or gender nonconforming, they always have masked. And for me personally, I've always masked, to my own detriment, where i didn 't even realize I was masking, I thought I was just doing what other people expected me to do or uh, was doing what everyone else was doing um, so learning to unmask and learning to be myself and learning what do I actually like or what is my actual personality instead of just kind of conforming to whatever the situation required has been a challenge um, it's i 've spent you know thirty plus years wearing my mask. And now I'm learning it is a mask. I never knew I had a mask on. I knew I was odd and different and blah, 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 but learning, okay, I have this mask on now. How do I take this mask off? And, you know, in the early stages of processing and learning about this, it's only going to be in safe spaces, you know, learning how to unmask in my own home or unmask in familiar places or with familiar people. I'm not going to unmask in the middle of the grocery store probably, Um, but as time goes on, the ultimate goal for myself is to learn to unmask completely so that my energy and all of this isn't wrapped up in maintaining this mask because that can cause and add on to a lot of anxiety issues and we don't even realize that that's what's happening is I'm anxious because I'm trying to keep this mask on and it doesn't it's difficult you know it's much easier just be yourself whoever that person may be (laughs) and I'm still learning and figuring that out so um again that was that list was from the book Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price great book I would fully recommend it if you have not read it Again, I apologize for the long episode, but I hope that this was informational and that you learned a little bit more about me. And thank you again for my listeners. I appreciate everyone that's been listening and tuning in and I'll see you next episode. Have a great one.